So Joel and Zechariah, they were the two minor prophets that made me hesitant to go further in the minor prophets. When I taught them, they were easily the most difficult to understand and interpret. interpret. They took the longest amount of time to study for. And of those two, Joel and Zechariah, Joel was easily, easily the most difficult for me. Not even in the minor prophets, I think Joel is one of the hardest books in the entire Bible to interpret its details rightly. And I'm I'm sure whenever I get around to doing an in-depth study of Ezekiel in the temple in the last chapters, uh, that will trump Joel. Uh, but, man, Joel is, is tough. And it's tough first because the day of the Lord is the major theme of the book. It gets the most object. It's the object of attention in the book. And that's a whole can of worms in and of itself. Timing, what is it? What is it going to accomplish? All those things. Second, though, wrapped up in that, Joel wraps up and discusses in the same breath a recent event in Judah's history with Judah's future, but our past as well as our future. If you didn't catch that and that was confusing, welcome to my world. In one event, he describes and points to at least three different time periods, if not more. And so you have to unravel that. What's he talking about? How do we apply this to then? How do we apply it to now? How do we apply it to then but not Quite then. And then, third, as with all the books of the Bible, there are several interpretive decisions that you have to make, but with Joel, he doesn't really give you that many clues to go off of. Uh, And so I say this, relaying the difficulty of the book of Joel, not to make you lose confidence in me and instantly check out saying this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, But I, I say this just to humbly admit that the book of Joel is tough, and also, as strange as this sounds, to give you confidence in your own Bible reading and study. It should give you confidence because, listen to me, even though Joel is difficult, its message and purpose can be easily understood through a plain reading of the text. You don't need to know Hebrew or have a seminary degree to understand what the message of Joel is and how to apply it to your life. You can behold Christ in it all the same. Those things will help tremendously. I'm not trying to downplay those things. Those things will help a lot. I'm not trying to undercut the value of those things, but God has gifted us with several reliable translations in our native tongues through which we can read his word and confidently know what it says. And then he has also gifted his people, his spirit, who helps us to understand and apply it to our hearts. And so all of your questions regarding the minor details in the book about the different prophecies in the book of Joel, whether they're fulfilled or not, or there's a greater fulfillment coming, they they might not be answered. They probably won't be answered. But the message of, the, of Joel is simple. And so here's the purpose of Joel. It's going to be evident as we read it abundantly. The book of Joel was written to cause its hearers to repent and turn to the Lord before the day of the Lord comes upon them. And I'll say that again. The book of Joel was written to cause its hearers to repent and turn to the Lord before the day of the Lord comes upon them. And then the application of the book is essentially how I entitled this sermon. Call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved from the destruction that the day of the Lord will bring. Call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved from the destruction that the day of the Lord will bring. All right. Well, I guess I think that was record time for sermon at CBC. We can all go home now. Uh, No, now we have the task of being Bereans and seeing if the text actually reflects what I just said and is true. And, and so the purpose, 
that statement that's written to cause its hearers to repent and turn to the Lord before the day of the Lord comes is reflected in the outline I gave you. The coming day of the Lord, as I said, is the central theme of the book of Joel. And so that's what we're going to be talking about as we go through it. However, there is a structure thing I want to point your attention to before we actually get into the book itself. Joel does uh, this type of thing when he's talking. Uh, He begins chapter 1 describing the after effects of this event that has occurred, and then the purpose of the event. And then in chapter 2, he sort of travels back in time, sort of figuratively, uh, and talks about when that event first occurred, so before all the destruction and just the terrifying nature of the event itself. And then he talks about the purpose, which is the exact same purpose of the event. And so why does he do this? Well, it's almost like he's driving a point into the Judeans' heads about their need to repent before a greater judgment comes. Oh, wait, that's exactly what he's doing. And so he's doing this for emphasis, is repeating himself. And so I just wanted to put that out there, put that out there first so that you don't think I'm repeating myself later. I am repeating myself later, but that's, that's the point. And so now let's go to the text itself uh, for time. Uh, Since we only have seven or eight hours, I won't read through the whole book, uh, but uh, we will read these first four verses and uh, many of the verses afterwards. The word of the Lord came that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And so just in these first four verses, right off the bat, we have to make two giant decisions that's going to affect our reading of the text. And I think these are two of the biggest hurdles in the book outside of the can of worms that the day of the Lord is, but when we get past them, it'll be smooth running to the, till the end of chapter 2, and the third biggest hurdle, which is uh, that prophecy about the coming of the Spirit. And so these two decisions that we have to make is first determining the timing and the audience of the book of Joel, and then if Joel is describing real locusts or if they are a metaphor for something else. Unlike many of the minor prophets, Joel doesn't tell us what kings were reigning during his ministry. And so dating the book can be a little difficult. There's a lot of different theories. And so because of this and the destruction that's described in the book, some take Joel to be a late prophet. And by late, I mean late. I'm talking post-exile and after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And that's obviously going to color how one interprets the locust invasion that is described in the book, as well as its purpose. I found that those who take Joel to be a later prophet seem to also lean toward the locust not being real, but being a metaphor probably for the Babylonian army. That's not the view I take for several reasons. First, Joel is placed very early in the ordering of the minor prophets. He's second, which are placed chronologically, assuming, of course, that Joel is an early book and an early prophet. That's circumstantial, uh, but I do think it holds weight. Uh, The people who compiled the Bible did so in a... Purposefully. Second, the stronger evidence of him being early within Joel, in chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 17, for instance, he talks about the temple and the priesthood as if those things are still around, that they haven't been destroyed or are husks of their former selves. Uh, That would clearly point to an early 
date. And then thirdly, Amos seems to quote Joel twice. And if he does, then we know that Joel had to have come before Amos, who we know is an early prophet, because he tells us what kings were reigning during his ministry. And so that's what I take. Joel, he's an early prophet, called by God sometime before 760 B.C., so one of the very earliest, was around the time Amos was called, 760, so sometime before that. And he is describing, and he's sent to Jerusalem, or near it, he's sent to Judea, after a major destructive event had occurred in the land. And this event totaled Judah. Think of past disasters that have devastated regions. Uh, Those wildfires last year, Hurricane Katrina, the 89 earthquake that cost the Giants the World Series. Though those events cause mass destruction, panic, loss of life, heartbreak, the one described in Joel is it's a level above. Think more on the lines of post-World War II Europe, where towns are just burning husks, or a better parallel would be the Dust Bowl of the 20s that just rocked the country, uh, where there was no food, where farmland was just dust and dirt. This destruction is on that level. And it was caused by literal locusts. They are not a metaphor. They are pointing to something greater beyond them and after them, but they were an actual locust swarm that has invaded Judah and devastated it. Though Joel uses fantastical imagery to describe their invasion, the locusts were nonetheless real. Yes, they are called a nation. They are likened to horses and chariots, but that's the point Joel is making. They are like those things because God is using them to point to those things that are coming in the future. But the locusts in Joel are locusts. And they descended upon Judah on a scale that is hard to comprehend because there were so many of them that they blocked out the sun and the moon and the stars, and they shook the earth. I don't know how many locusts that takes, but it's a lot. And the destruction they left in their wake was total to show the people the kind of destruction that the day of the Lord will bring. It's coming by the hand of the Lord. And verse 4 tells us that they came in waves, which helps the destruction, the, the difference between the cutting, swarming, and hopping locusts, that could either be a difference in uh, the type of locusts that came, or uh, some commentators uh, say that it could be uh, a reference to their life cycle. Um, larva only hop, they don't fly, um, things like that. Um, the purpose, though, either the, whatever the case, is that whatever the first wave left behind, the second wave ate. Whatever the second wave left behind, the third wave ate. And the purpose was to eat everything, to leave nothing behind. And then later on in chapter 1, we find out that with the locusts also come a drought and wildfires. And so just body blow after body blow after uppercut. And so soon after these destructive things occur, soon after Judah is absolutely devastated, the word of the Lord comes to Joel, and he is called to go to the people who have nothing, who are starving, whose animals are starving, and he tells them this, In verses 5 to 9, so first he told them in chapter 3, tell this to your children, don't let them forget this. There's a lesson coming because of this. And then verse 5, awake you drunkards and weep, and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. 
The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. By God's grace, I've never had to suffer through losing everything due to a natural disaster, like due to a fire or some sort of earthquake. But I've seen their effects on the news. You probably have as well. Maybe you've even suffered firsthand through something like that or seen it. It's devastating, and it doesn't just affect people physically. It affects them emotionally. It affects them even spiritually. And these locusts, this, the fires, the droughts that accompanied them, they devoured everything, absolutely everything. Even the bark on the trees has been stripped bare. There's no grain to eat, let alone offered to the Lord, and that's going to be an important detail, by the way. There's no oil, there's no wine, there's no wheat, there's no pomegranates, there's no palms, there's no figs, there's no apples. The locusts have taken everything, and they've even taken joy from the land as well. All the people have left are tears. Though they have their lives, seemingly wasn't a, uh, something that killed many, uh, but the land has been totally destroyed. And as a nation, this is like a nation-ending event. This is apocalyptic. As people living in America, which for a long time now has been blessed with prosperity and abundance, this kind of devastation can be hard to imagine. We don't have any frame of reference to it. Uh, but you can go and look up pictures from the Dust Bowl to get some semblance of this kind of thing. Although it's just great clouds of dust that sweeped over the land. Instead of dust, picture locusts. See pictures of farmers looking over their fields when there's absolutely nothing but dirt. Go up on YouTube and look up interviews with someone who lived through it, and you'll get a small picture of what the Judeans faced at this time. Their hunger, the worry of parents over how they're going to feed them their children, let alone their livestock and themselves. What are they going to do, and why has this happened? This is the people of God. Why has God allowed these locusts to invade and devastate the land to the degree that they have? This is Judah. This isn't Israel, northern Israel who abandoned the Davidic king in the temple of the living God. This is Judah who has those things. And so what's going on? Well, Joel is going to declare in the very next chapter that God didn't just allow these locusts to ravage Judah, but that they were actually the Lord's very army that he commanded himself. God is the one who sent these locusts to totally devastate the land and to suck all of the joy out of it. And so what's the purpose? Why did he do this? Well, the purpose is to warn Judah to get Judah to repent before his greater judgment comes upon them. God's message to his people in light of this destruction that they are witnessing and have lived through is to return to him. And we read this in verses 13 to 16. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan! The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. 
The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Now we're not told the explicit sin, why God is disciplining Judah in this way and what they are to repent of. But knowing Judah's history, we can make the safe bet that it was idolatry that led to other sins. Ever since about the middle of Solomon's reign, the united Israel and then the two kingdoms were on this spiritual freefall. They had abandoned Yahweh, they had been unfaithful, and so God began sending him, sending them, his prophets, to call them to repentance before his patience toward them ran out, and that they faced his wrath. But God didn't just send prophets, he also sent locusts. He sent them as a foretaste of his wrath that his people might repent before the full brunt of his wrath came upon them, whose destruction would be even worse. Joel gives them a first hint of this ominous day of the Lord that's near, and the purpose of this hint is to cause the people to repent, to turn back to their God. The priests, the spiritual leaders of the people, are to put on sackcloth and lament and fast, mourn over the fact that there aren't any resources available to offer sacrifices to God. But this is the Old Testament. How are they supposed to repent and call out to God without the sacrificial system? This was what they had to call, call out to God to. This is what they had to commune with God and to worship him and to speak with him. What are they going to do without the sacrifices? Well, David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, murdered Uriah, he writes this in Psalm 51, verses 15 to 19, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. In the old covenant, the sacrificial system was necessary because God prescribed it. But it wasn't the sacrifices themselves that led to the people's sins being covered through the sacrifices. The sacrifices didn't serve to teach Israel that it took a bull or a half a goat or a pound of wheat to cover over their sins. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. The sacrifices were purposed to cause the people to understand what their sin deserved, which is death, And to train the people to fall on and trust only in the Lord's mercy and grace to forgive them of their sin. That they couldn't remove their own sinfulness and guilt, no matter how many bulls they sacrificed. And that God was their only hope. The true sacrifice was the faith that God would provide the ultimate means of their salvation and forgiveness. And that's the heart that Joel is calling his people to. Call everyone in the nation to gather at the temple, the house of God to cry out for him, to him for mercy. They have literally nothing to offer him to seek his favor, but they are going to call out to him anyway. This is what God is driving them to realize in the locusts, why the locusts came this heavily against the land to devour everything. And in the warning here is that there is a greater day of judgment coming. And so he's telling the people, you have Nothing in your hands to offer me. But if you call out to me in simple faith, you will be saved. Turn before the day of the Lord, which is near, comes. Turn and be saved from the total destruction that it brings. 
which is greater than the devastation that you face now. You guys escaped with your lives with the locusts. You will not when I come. Now, so far, Joel has just described the result of this invasion. He's standing with his people. He's looking out at this complete destruction. He's calling out to the Lord for help. And he's hinted that there is something worse on the horizon if they don't repent. And now in chapter 2, he's going to bring the people back to that day, the day when the locusts came, to that terrifying and disastrous day. And he's going to say, remember that. Don't let that fear escape your memory. Remember it, because that's what the day of the Lord is going to be like. And so he says in chapter 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Get the warning out to everybody. Blow a trumpet. Let everybody hear. This is not a good day. This is a day of warning, of judgment, of terrifying fear. This is a day of trembling, of darkness and gloom. This is the day of the Lord's wrath coming upon his people. And again, this is where Joel gets difficult. Because in this chapter, he's, gonna, he's, he's still describing the locust invasion, which happened in his day. And verses 18 to 27 make that clear, that he's talking about the locust. But he is also using the locust to point forward to a greater force of the Lord's judgment and wrath that is coming in the future. And that's clear in the language, how, how some of the things are, clearly weren't, haven't happened yet. That something worse is coming. A force even more terrifying than what we read in verses 2 to 11. But let's just take in this, this terrifying sight. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them. Through the years of all generations, fire devours before them. And behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. For he, he who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? When I read that, it's just a picture in my mind. I think of the two towers, the Battle of Helm's Deep. Just the endless parade of orcs in Urukai that are marching down the hill toward our heroes. A small amount of... Uh, Rohan soldiers on the wall, and they know they have no chance. They're terrified. Now, in the Lord of the Rings, things turn out relatively well for the defenders, but in the case of the locusts, the Judeans are overrun. How are these locusts being able to be so ordered and get what they need to get and maneuver the way they are? Well, it's because the Lord himself is ordering them and commanding them and guiding them. The locusts run roughshod over the land. People can't stop them. Soldiers can't stop them, nor could walls or windows. There's so many of them 
that they cover the sky and the earth vibrates. That must have been terrifying. Bugs, they normally don't bother me. Spiders, they're the spawn of Satan, but flying bugs, even wasps and hornets, they're mostly just annoying. But if you've seen a video of a major locust swarm or like when the cicadas come out in full force, that's terrifying. Just this like black cloud that's moving across the land. And this was like a super swarm. This is like Jurassic World super locusts here. They're collectively this unstoppable, devouring, destroying machine. And God is saying that this is what his day is going to be like. And so he's telling them, you guys remember that fear in the pit of your stomachs on that first day when you saw on the horizon this just great cloud of bugs coming over the hills that were blocking out the sun was like, well, my day is going to be worse than that. Don't forget that fear. Remember it. Let it strike your heart and remember that God's judgment is near. And yet, even now, verse 12 declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? These verses are very sweet. Uh, A precursor is a precursor for a reason. It is meant to inform and point to what will come after it. The locusts came and devastated the land, but at least the majority of the people still have their lives. God has been merciful. But when the day of the Lord comes, that destruction will be complete unless something happens in the hearts of the people. But there's still time. As I said earlier, they must return to him with their whole heart, which is shown in their outward actions, this fast, this weeping, this calling out to him. But look at what Joel is focusing the people on in this destruction. He's not telling them to look to themselves, say, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. He's telling them, remember who Yahweh is. Quoting Exodus 34, 6, he reminds them that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and that he relents over disaster. And then in verse 17, he tells the people, the priests, to pray back to God his promises and his glory. Lord, we are your people. You have called us your heritage. Your enemies know this. If you destroy us, that will give them reason to gloat over you. Now, this isn't a manipulation of God of, in a sort of, you're kind of stuck with this God. You chose us, so um, save us so that you aren't defamed. If, you, if they destroy us, it'll make you look bad, so come on. We know you're going to save us. No, this is a humble prayer. What this prayer represents is the people's concern for the Lord's glory first, recognizing that in it, in his glorification, is their salvation They are saying, Lord, for your sake, save us. It's a recognition of the Lord's greatness and what their sin deserves. It's saying, Lord, we do not deserve to be saved. 
Don't save us because of us. Don't let that be your reason to save us. We deserve to be crushed under your holy heel, but for the sake of your name and according to your steadfast love and irrevocable promises, please save us. And so the people in Joel's day, they do this. They repent. They turn. This generation learned the lesson of the locusts. And look at the result in verses 18 to 27. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched land and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall, be, shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Again, Joel is mixing the present with the future in these verses. But don't, get bogged, don't bog yourself down with the nitty-gritty and lose sight of, of what the passage is saying. These verses are a beautiful hope and promise as to what true repentance brings. The people respond rightly to the Lord's warning. They turn to him full of faith and with their whole hearts They view their salvation from the right perspective, which is for the glory of God first. And the Lord responds with complete restoration and total salvation. What was destroyed is rebuilt. What was taken is restored. Everything that the locust took will be miraculously given back. The nation will not collapse. The nation will not end. But in fact, they have a glorious future where God will be in their midst. And they will never be put to shame again. Clearly, that didn't happen in Joel's day because the exile is still coming. He's pointing forward. That is still future. But there is coming a day when Israel will once again repent. They will turn to Christ. And this will be completely fulfilled, what we just read. And they will dwell in the land in peace with their God and Savior. And so the message of Joel to his people is don't wander away from Yahweh again. Sadly, Judah didn't listen, and they would face another precursor to the day of the Lord, which is the exile, which was worse than the locust, but even that was merely just a foretaste of the greater day of the Lord that was to come. But this day that God tells his people is coming, and that they should fear, is also surprisingly a day that's going to be preceded by an age that will be characterized by the giving of a spirit. And to say that it's merely a precursor, though, is not quite right, because what is described in the last verses of chapter 2 is wrapped up in that day as well, 
but it also precedes it. Did I mention that the book of Joel is difficult? Uh, Joel 2, 28 to 32 is the most famous part of the book of Joel, and that's because Peter quotes it at Pentecost, and then also because Paul quotes it, as Derek just read for us in Romans. We'll get to those uses of this passage in a little bit, but first let's just walk through it in its original context, get through the rest of Joel, because once we do that and we understand that, I think understanding Peter's use of it as well as Paul's will make a whole lot more sense. And so let's look at this wonderful promise. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward. So there's a question. After what? And that's tricky. It's after the repentance described in verses 18 to 27, which is combining both present and future. Present, speaking of Joel's day. And so verses 28 to 32 is describing a period that happens after the repentance and restoration that occurred during Joel's day, but before the final day of the Lord, though it will also occur again in Israel's future. And so there's two future, one present. Uh, Again, this book is difficult. Uh, Again, though, we can't let ourselves get bogged down with trying to smooth everything out in regard to timing and the like to the detriment of losing what it's saying. And so, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So God is telling his people, there is coming a time when I am going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, all flesh clearly doesn't mean totally, as in everyone, uh, like that, but all kinds, because he enumerates that right after he says all flesh. There will be no class of people that the Spirit is withheld from. Men and women, young and old, even lowly servants will receive his Spirit. If you were a Jewish person living at this time, Joel's day, where would your mind go after hearing this promise? If you're thinking Isaiah or Ezekiel, you would be wrong because those haven't been written yet. It's a trick question because those are probably the ones you probably thought of. Your mind would actually go to Numbers. Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. Moses was the prophetic leader of Israel who had communion with God, who was able to speak to him intimately, and who had God's spirit upon him to empower him, to (coughs) prophesy, and to lead the people. But Moses was still just a man. And so he couldn't deal with two million plus people's grievances with one another. He needed help. And so God told him, gather 70 men together that you trust, and upon them will my spirit come upon them. And so long story short, Moses does this, and there are two men of those 70 chosen who were in the midst of the camp when the spirit came upon them, and they began prophesying in public with many people hearing. And word of that gets back to Joshua, who is loyal to Moses, And he knows that if other people start prophesying, that might undercut Moses' authority and leadership. And so he asked Moses, should I go out and stop them? Should I prevent them from prophesying? And Moses, the humblest man on earth, responds to Joshua this way in Numbers 11.29. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake 
Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And so the Lord is telling his people in Joel's day that this desire of Moses's is about to be fulfilled. When this restoration comes in the future, his people will receive his spirit and they will know that this period has come about them because it will be marked by signs and wonders. The spirit may be invisible, but you can't miss his coming. It will be accompanied by signs in heaven and supernatural deeds done through God's people. And God tells them that this is going to occur before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It's going to precede it. It's going to be a marker to them. And oh yeah, you can't miss this. This period is going to be one of mass salvation. There will be many who escape, who have come to Jerusalem to call on the name of the Lord. And the guarantee, if they do, is that they will be saved. Every single person who calls on Yahweh's name will be saved. Without exception. But God, when thinking about this, God has already told his people to call on his name in repentance. And so how is this different from that initial call? Well, the clear implication is that they don't have to wait for this day to come to call on the name of the Lord and thus be saved. This is further reinforcing what God has already trained them in through the locusts, which is to wholly and solely rely on him for their salvation. But there is a difference here, and the difference in this age and this calling by Yahweh, calling on Yahweh, is only going to be revealed to them in time when we get to this event called Pentecost. But first, there's more good news about this day of the Lord, which initially was very terrifying. The good news is that the day of the Lord is going to bring the judgment of Israel's enemies, of God's people's enemies. And for time, I won't read verses 1 to 15, but I encourage you to. Though it's describing judgment, it's describing God's justice against the enemy of his people and against his enemies. This coming day of the Lord will not just bring salvation for God's people, but it will also bring with it the judgment of their enemies. God has seen and remembered every single sin that the nations have committed against his people, and he will pay it on their heads, and it will be at this day. Verse 10 might sound familiar to you when he writes, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. It's the opposite of Isaiah 2.4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So in Isaiah's context, he's speaking to these nations that he's going to save, and so they don't need any weapons of war anymore. They're, they're with the Lord. There's going to be peace. But in the context of Joel, God is talking about his enemies, and so it's reversed. He's taunting them. He's challenging them. Gather every single able-bodied person in your nations and come. Take me on. See if you can try it. Make as many weapons as you possibly can. Turn your farming utensils into swords and spears and catapults and come and meet me outside. I've prepared this nice valley for it. The cup of God's wrath is complete ready to be poured out on their heads, and it's not even a challenge for the Lord. He says multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That's the multitude of dead bodies that will happen at this day. This valley is their mass grave for opposing God and his people. The day of the Lord is a day of decision. It's a day of final judgment. And this is the thing with the day of the Lord that can be confusing, because we've seen that the day of the Lord is both a day of judgment and also a day of salvation for God's people. And this is where Israel got confused. 
We're going to read in some of the other minor prophets that they began wishing for the day of the Lord to come. They heard the promises of salvation in it. They heard of the destruction of their enemies. And they're like, bring it on, God. Come quickly. Right? And God tells them, you utter fools. Why would he tell them that? It's because the Israel and Judah that were desiring the day of the Lord did not learn the lesson of Joel and of the locust invasion. Remember that God is going to speak verses 16 to 21 in chapter 3 to a people who have already recognized their sin and have repented. And they've recognized God's holiness. But the Israel and Judah who were proudly calling for the day of the Lord were an idolatrous people who thought they were good with God just because of their namesake. I'm an Israelite, so this day is going to be great for me. They presumed that the Lord is on their side just because of their birthright. All the while, they were living just like the nations that they were wishing God would destroy in utter sin and depravity and idolatry with no repentant heart and no relationship to God. They, like the nations, will be crushed on the day of the Lord because, as Paul says, not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. There's a lesson in that for us because we also have a similar saying we say as believers. The day of the Lord is a terrifying judgment day of gloom and destruction and pain and anguish for the enemies of the Lord and his people. Can't, can't whitewash that. Can't mitigate that. But it is also a day of wonderful salvation and restoration for the true people of God. And that's how the book ends. Starting in verse 16 of the last chapter, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This is clearly yet future, but it is as sure as the judgment that is coming upon God's enemies. Judah will be inhabited forever, first in the millennial kingdom, and then on the new earth. Yahweh will dwell in Zion with his people. They will return And look on the one whom they pierced and fall back under the kingly line of David. And so what a tremendous hope and future for a people who at the start of this book are looking out at a barren wasteland. After their nation was destroyed in this apocalyptic locust invasion. And so now let's close our time with Peter and Paul's use of Joel. Chapter 2 verse 28 to 32. We've seen it. In its immediate context, how the Judeans in Joel's time would have understood its promise of the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy of a day when all his people, all of God's people, would have his spirit. But who are God's people and when will this day come? Is it already fulfilled? Is it not? Well, the book of Joel and its promises aren't just for Judah. They don't just apply to Judah. They also apply to every believer in this room, Jew and Gentile alike. I can confidently declare to you that this day has come. This age is upon us. It happened at Pentecost, at the ascension. Jesus told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the fulfillment of his promises to them. His promise that when he leaves them to return to the Father, he would send his spirit 
who would instruct and empower them to complete the task he gave them, which is to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. We won't read all of Acts 2, but on the day of Pentecost, Jesus' promise of that day was fulfilled. All of the believers were filled with the Spirit, and they began speaking in tongues. They were not speaking in an incomprehensible gibberish. They were not wishing they bought a Honda, but they were speaking real languages that the people on the street understood. And they were speaking of the risen Lord Jesus. This is a clear sign to everybody that was there that something miraculous, something spiritual, something supernatural has just happened. Something age-defining has happened. That was the purpose of the gift of tongues and of prophecy, and, and it's why they ceased. To guide Christ's church while the rest of the canon was being written, and to signify that this age prophesied in Joel has come. We're living in it. And with those tasks now fulfilled, those gifts passed away. But at Pentecost, fearful Peter who denied Christ to his slave girl mere weeks before this, stands up and boldly proclaims to the very same people who weeks before yelled for Christ to be crucified. He says this in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 24. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and on your sons and your daughters, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what is his name? Peter continues, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, I haven't looked outside in a little bit. But I can see sunlight coming through the windows, and so I don't think the sun has turned to darkness yet. Nor has the moon turned to blood. And so clearly, there are still some signs that are yet to come to signify the the day of the Lord being here fully. Which I believe is going to come with ethnic Israel's repentance and restoration. But Peter is clearly saying to his hearers that this age of the Spirit and of salvation has come. He's saying this is fulfilled. You are witnessing it. He's saying this to the very men who crucified Christ. Men who now hear that this Jesus whom they crucified was risen by God and is the very Lord they need to call on for salvation. They realize this is the man they killed with their hands. And they are convicted of their sin. And so they ask Peter, what should they do? What can we do? We killed him. We killed the God of life. And Peter doesn't tell them, well, too bad. You killed the king that kind of is seen poorly in the kingdom. Uh, Good luck. 
No, he, he tells them in verses 38 and 39, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He tells them, Repent and be baptized. Call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. If the people who literally crucified Christ could be saved, the promise in Joel is as inclusive as it could possibly be. The gospel message of Christ, that he died for sinners, that he rose in victory, that if you turn from your sin and trust solely in him for the forgiveness of your sins, is for absolutely everyone on the planet. Jesus is the Yahweh of Joel 2.32. The all-flesh, though, in Joel 2.28 as it was not universal in its original context, is also not universal in this context. The flesh refers to the flesh of all kinds of people. Paul in Romans 10, 9-13, which Derek read earlier, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches, his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is not universal. Not everyone is saved. Not everyone is spared the destruction of the day of the Lord. The gospel call is universal, though. But salvation is not. Everyone hearing this message, whether you're here in the worship center or in the fellowship hall or you're watching this on YouTube weeks later, If you call on the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, you will be saved. They will be saved from the wrath coming on the day of the Lord when Jesus Christ returns to finally defeat his enemies and crush the serpent under his heel. But you must call on his name. What does it mean then to call? Does it it mean that you just simply say, Jesus, save me, and then that's it? It does not mean that. It does not mean that you just say the name of Jesus and you're saved. It does not mean that you make a single prayer when you're 10 and then live your life as you did before and you're saved. It does not mean that because you were born into a Christian household that you are saved. That was the foolishness of Israel. To call on Jesus means that you have understood your guilt before a holy God and that you have nothing to offer him beside your guilt. That like Judah in the time of Joel, which didn't even have a single grain of wheat to offer him, You come to him completely empty-handed. To call on Jesus is to recognize your helplessness and to simply trust in the promises of God in Christ. That when God says that Jesus is the Messiah and the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world, that those sins included yours. To trust that Christ's death completely and totally and finally absorbed God's holy and just wrath against you, And that he has clothed you with Jesus' perfect righteousness. To call on the name of Jesus is to have received his spirit, who testifies to your spirit that you have been adopted into the family of God, that you are a child of God, and whose presence in your heart is shown now in how you live according to the spirit and producing his fruit, that you walk now according to the spirit. If you haven't yet called on the name of Jesus, do not presume on the Lord's patience. The day of the Lord is near, and it is a day of gloom and darkness. Jesus is coming soon. And if you have not called on his name in faith, by the time he comes, he will crush you in his wrath. 
But the offer is there. Call on him and you will be saved. Be baptized and join his body, his church, in the mission that he's given them to be a witness to him. And if you have called on him already and are now expectantly awaiting the day of the Lord, which is right to do, come, Lord Jesus, come, which will be a day of complete restoration and salvation, then listen to Paul's exhortation after he quotes Joel 2.32 in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17. What are we to do with this information, having already called on his name? He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. They must hear the name of Christ to be saved. They must hear the gospel preached to call on his name. And therefore our task is to go. Like Joel and Peter and Paul, go and proclaim the salvation that is only found in the name of Jesus Christ. Tell everyone that you meet of the judgment that is coming, but most importantly, tell them of Jesus, the risen Lord who is willing and able to save them from it. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, merciful God, abounding in steadfast love, and who relents from disaster. We thank you for this warning in Joel of this coming day of the Lord. Though we weren't there to witness this invasion by locusts, Lord, let its destruction strike us with fear all the same. Cause us to fear your holy name and to call out on the means of salvation that you have provided, the means of your son, Jesus, who died in our place, Lord, if we have called on him, who died for sinners and whose righteousness is available and able to cover all of our sins. Help us to call on him in simple faith, Lord, anybody in this room and abroad who has not yet called on him, Lord. Cause them to flee and turn to you in Christ. And help us who have called on him, Lord, who are filled with your spirit, who have been gifted in many ways to build up your body. Help us to be bold witnesses of that truth, Lord, knowing that the day is coming soon and that all those who have not called on Christ will face that destruction in chapter 1 and 2. Help us, Lord, to love our neighbors through proclaiming the gospel. Help us to love you, for you commanded us to tell everyone of your Son. Help us, Lord, in all these things we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.